Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're exploring the case for techno-optimism. Techno-optimism is this notion that we can solve the world's problems through technology and innovation. And that includes even the most difficult problems in the world, such as climate change, deadly diseases, joblessness, the AI alignment problem, war, famine, and the resource limitations of our home planet. And I've been reading a number of these techno-optimist pieces from people like Noah Smith, Tyler Cowen, Caleb Watney, and others this week, and they share some really interesting and bold predictions about what we're going to experience in the future based on the innovations that are occurring right now. So I'd like to share some of these predictions and insights in this episode. There's this famous saying that a rising tide lifts all boats. And one of my favorite insights from these techno-optimist pieces is that energy innovation really is the most powerful X factor that can lift all boats in an economy, increase productivity, and just overall level up our ability to innovate across all sectors. And it makes sense because everything we do requires energy. If we want to build a spaceship, if we want to build a new nuclear power plant, if we want to create artificial limbs, even if we want to do things in the world of software and computers, all of that requires energy. And when you look at the trends of energy expenditure per capita over time compared to productivity growth over time, we see a really interesting trend. And that is that up until the 1970s, energy expenditure per capita was rising dramatically. So this is when we had a massive sprawling of the American suburbs. We were building all these highways. We had Pan Am Airlines. And we were just sprawling out how much we could build with our increased energy capabilities. But then right around the 1970s, we started to hit peak oil. And it became that much more expensive to extract fossil fuels from the ground. And because of that, we actually see a flatlining of energy expenditure per capita starting in the 1970s and then it actually declines and at the same time whereas we saw massive productivity growth up until the 1970s starting after the 1970s we see a slowdown of productivity growth and that's why from the 2000s and the 2010s we focused less on growing the pie of how much energy we had at our disposal, and instead we focused on finding more creative ways to use the energy we already had. That's why we have the famous Peter Thiel quote where he says, we wanted flying cars, but instead we got 140 characters. He's speaking about the notion that we thought we'd have flying cars and hoverboards and teleportation and all of these interesting things in the world of atoms, but instead we just got social media apps and software and interesting things in the world of bits. But now in the year 2020, all of that is starting to change. And that's because we are starting to witness a real game changing trend as it relates to our ability to harness energy and use it for everything that we do in a society. One of the biggest changes is the cost of renewable energy has gone down dramatically since the period of the Great Stagnation in the 2000s and 2010s. And when we look at the price of solar, for instance, it went from a cost of $359 per megawatt hour in 2009 to just $40 in 2019. And when you compare that to gas, gas is at $56 per megawatt hour in 2019. And coal is at 109 power, much more expensive in 2019. At the same time, we see wind 
massively decreases in cost. So wind is now also cheaper than gas or coal. And so now, whereas in the past, you, you know, you had these fossil fuel companies that were making a killing. And so obviously they weren't willing to innovate in clean energy because there wasn't much profit in it. Now we're seeing a reversal where you can actually make a greater profit by going the clean energy route and going away from coal and other fossil fuel energies. One of the other major areas of innovation has been in the battery space. And this is important because one of the main critiques of renewable energies like solar and wind is that if the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, then you wouldn't have any energy unless you have an efficient and effective way of storing that energy for a cloudy day or for a windless day. And in the past, batteries were not that great at storing energy for long periods of time. So if you needed to transfer energy from one part of the sunny country to maybe a cloudy urban center, it was pretty much a non-starter. But now in the last 10 years, there has been tremendous gains in battery storage capacity. A lot of that is due to the electric car revolution and all the innovations of Tesla and other similar companies. Also solar cells have seen massive gains. So this coupled with renewable energies being much cheaper now than non-renewable energies is just a really great combination for our capacity to capture energy and harness that energy for all the things that we do here on Earth. And this leads to a virtuous cycle with clean energy where the more deployment we have of clean energy technology, the cheaper those solutions become, which then leads to more demand for those solutions, more competition. And then that leads to more deployment and more innovation and prices fall even more. And then there's more demand again. So we are seeing this virtuous cycle play out right now. And I'll just give one example which is that Ford is coming out with the first ever all-electric Ford Mustang. Now that would seem like a crazy idea 10 years ago, but now the fact that there's so much demand for electric vehicles because Tesla made it cool and now the performance is actually on par or in many cases superior to gas-powered cars, now it's created this virtuous cycle where every auto manufacturer is switching to full electric and that's going to be one of the big determining factors of if a company like Ford can actually survive and thrive in this new economy. There's another X factor in the energy space which is nuclear fusion energy. This is really one of the holy grails of physics. If we can figure out nuclear fusion we could have virtually limitless clean energy. And first I'll say a little bit about the difference between nuclear fusion and nuclear fission, which is what we currently have. So nuclear fusion is when you take two nuclei in an atom and you fuse them together. That's what's happening in the sun. And when you do that, you create output of helium, which is a stable gas, it's plentiful on Earth, and it has no downsides. There's no toxic waste that's emitted. So this is obviously far superior to our current process of nuclear fission, where we take a really heavy, unstable nucleus, and then we split it into two lighter nuclei. But when you do that, you create all of this nuclear waste that then has to be disposed of safely. Maybe you bury it in the earth. Maybe you shoot it into outer space. And this has been the main thing holding nuclear energy back, which is that no one wants nuclear waste in their backyard. 
And also, nuclear fission isn't nearly as efficient as nuclear fusion. I mean, when you think about how much energy the sun produces in such a stable, reliable, almost never-ending way, if we were able to harness that here on Earth, we would be able to grow our productivity and output and innovation in an almost unimaginable sense. So this is another X factor to keep an eye out. It's worth noting that some people are skeptical about our ability to achieve nuclear fusion energy anytime soon. But the New York Times just did an article where they claim it's right around the corner and there is a lot of money being invested in this space. So personally, I feel optimistic that sometime in the next 10 years, we will have a breakthrough in the nuclear fusion space, particularly as we leverage AI and other technologies to come up with better ways of creating fusion-powered energy sources. Another point that many pessimists like to bring up is that there is so much carbon already in the atmosphere that even if we switch to totally clean renewable energy and we innovate and everyone gets electric cars and all, all of that happens, we still have so much carbon in the atmosphere that we would experience damaging effects of global warming for years and decades and maybe even centuries to come. However, there is a potential solution, which is decarbonization. And that is essentially taking carbon from the atmosphere and sequestering it into things like limestone. And this is something that happens already naturally as part of the Earth's process. And we're figuring out ways to do it at scale through our own technology. So Bill Gates has invested heavily in this. I actually did a whole episode on decarbonization. If you're interested, you can listen to that episode. But the notion is that with decarbonization, we will be able to solve climate change if we put our minds to it. In the same way that with the pandemic, we were able to get all of our smartest scientists working for the same goal of creating a vaccine. We did it in under a year. And I think we could do the same sort of thing for climate change. The other positive sign is that many companies are now pledging to become carbon neutral by some date. So some companies say we will be 100% carbon neutral by 2030. And what that means is it's not that they're going to stop emitting any sort of energy as a result of their business. Instead, whatever energy they emit, they're going to invest an equal amount in carbon sequestration so they can capture carbon from the atmosphere to offset the carbon they're putting out into the atmosphere. And I think over time, the companies that make that pledge will be more favored by consumers and governments and all of society. So I think we're already moving in that direction where the companies 10 years from now, they're all going to need to be carbon neutral in order to still become a favorable company in the eyes of consumers. Yet another really promising argument for the case for techno-optimism is that the space race is now back in full force. So just as we are making all these energy innovations on Earth, we're figuring out ways to sequester carbon, we're becoming more renewable with our energy, more efficient with our battery storage, we're more innovative with our nuclear fusion approach. At that same time, we're also looking beyond Earth into outer space so we can potentially mine asteroids and leverage the resources beyond our own planet. SpaceX definitely started this space race. They captured everyone's imagination. They showed people that it was still possible. 
And they created game-changing innovations like reusable rockets, which level up our ability to use the energy we have to explore beyond our own planet. And since SpaceX has made these innovations, we've seen a blossoming of other private companies in the U.S. like Amazon's Blue Origin, like Virgin Galactic. And we're also seeing other countries like China is now landing on the moon in a manned mission. They're potentially going to set up a moon base there. Other countries are also looking to innovate with space travel. So the fact that we now have the space race again seems to me to lead to the conclusion that there will be tons of innovation as a result of this. I mean, the last space race we had, that's where we came up with inventions like GPS and power tools, and the internet became much more robust during that time. So I think that once we really go into full force with this current space race, we're going to see massive gains in innovation. One example I'll give is that uh, this VC who I follow, Delian, he just announced his new company, Varda, or company he's investing in, which is going to manufacture commercially viable products in space at scale. And the reason why this would ever be a good idea is because certain really valuable products can only be made in zero-G environment. So for instance, we've talked about 3D printed organs on this podcast, and there has been some success with making 3D printed organs on Earth, but part of the difficulty is that when you're dealing with gravity and you're trying to build out this structure of, let's say, a heart, well, it's having to fight against gravity. So oftentimes when you try to 3D print an organ, it just ends up being like a puddle on the ground and you can't, you can't create enough of a robust 3D structure that's able to survive the force of gravity. So instead, if you were able to 3D print a heart in outer space, and then you could allow the cellular structure to strengthen before coming back to Earth and giving it to people who are on the organ donor list, that's a potentially much more viable way to manufacture 3D printed organs at scale. Likewise, there's also super strong materials like carbon nanotubes, which we talked about as it relates to a space elevator. And that sort of thing may only be feasible if we were manufacturing in a, a zero G environment. But Delian has said that their ultimate goal is not only to take materials from Earth and then assemble them in space in zero G. Eventually, he wants to actually mine resources from asteroids and then manufacture products uh, in space. So you take resources from space, manufacture them in space, and then you can use them on Earth or in space. And when you think about how big of an X factor this is, we are no longer going to be limited by the materials on Earth. We will eventually be able to take materials from asteroids, from moons, from other planets, and that will level up our ability to grow our productivity and innovation to an incredible degree. Noah Smith has this interesting metaphor where he says that scientific knowledge is like mining for iron ore. You will strike a vein and that will lead to all these other new inventions. But then eventually you've figured out all of those inventions and the vein runs dry. So then you have to find a new vein. And that's why productivity, growth, and innovation is not a linear process. There's not always going to be the same level of productivity growth from one year to another or from one decade to another. 
And what's happening right now that's making people so optimistic about technology is that we have found some new veins that haven't even begun to be fully mined out. So when you think about something like the mRNA vaccine, it's not a new vaccine, it's a new type of vaccine. Once you realize that you can use messenger RNA in order to deliver effective vaccines against almost any disease, that opens up a whole new world of potential biomedical treatments. Likewise, with GPT-3, we haven't even scratched the surface of what you could do if you had GPT-3 at your disposal to create any sort of words or knowledge on demand, and you can then work with the computer to write essays or come up with new ideas or analyze the past or any number of things. With AlphaFold 2, the ability to map out protein folding and then more greatly understand what's going on in the body and what sort of solutions might actually be viable. Same thing with SpaceX reusable rockets. That's something that opens up the space world to an incredible degree. Everything with Bitcoin and decentralized finance and the blockchain, any number of apps could be built on the blockchain that would be a total game changer. So I think why the techno optimists are so optimistic right now is because we see these brand new veins popping up and we haven't even started to mine them out. And there's also something interesting, which is that when we have first made some new massively game-changing discovery, it takes a little bit of time for us to integrate it so it actually creates more productivity. You know, think about when, you know, in Mad Men, if you've ever watched that show, think about when they had to switch from the old school approach where you had all these physical papers and you had secretaries dealing with phone calls and people in meetings to the new marketing agency where everything is based on computers and you don't need any physical paper and you don't need any call girls routing calls and and transcribing what people say in meetings. That is a total shift from the way things were in the past to the way things are now. And in the first few years of that, it takes time and effort to adjust. So there may actually be a productivity slowdown initially when you're making that transition. But once you've fully integrated the new technology into your system and you have a fundamentally new paradigm in which you do business, that's when you realize all of those productivity gains. And this is what's known as the J curve because it's shaped like a J or some people refer to it as the learning curve. And from my perspective, we are we experienced the J curve in 2000 and 2010. And now we're just starting to realize some of those productivity gains. At the same time, we're making new innovations that are going to create massive productivity gains, not this year or next year, but five or 10 years down the line. So when I think about how much growth and innovation is possible in the next 10 years, I really think it's tremendous. Now let's get into the future scenarios. Let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario in my mind is that we realize a cyberpunk future, which is pretty much the future that people were expecting in the 2000s and 2010s. This is the future envisioned in Ready Player One, where there's all these incredible things going on in the digital virtual reality space, 
and there's all these flashing LED lights everywhere. Everything is all these metal buildings. But the world's environment has gone to shit. There's pollution everywhere. The city, you can't even see because there's so much fog all throughout the city. There's not a plant in sight. Everything is just metal and plastic and LED screens. And most animals have gone extinct. And most people are overweight and unhealthy. It's also similar to the future envisioned by Wall-E or Blade Runner or The Matrix. And so I would say this is an outdated vision of the future. This is what I would have said the future may be going towards 10 years ago. I no longer think this is where the future is going. So now let's talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario is a solar punk future. So you've probably heard of cyberpunk, not the video game, which seems to have a lot of bugs. But just the concept of cyberpunk is that notion of having everything be metal, plastic, digital, pixels, the natural world has gone to shit. Solarpunk is sort of the opposite in that it's a time when environmentalism has been fully integrated with technology so that mother nature, mankind, and technology are all woven together and integrated in this beautiful way. So there's much solar punk artwork out there that I think is amazing to check out if you haven't seen any. And we share some on our social media so you can check us out at Hunts the Future. And a lot of this artwork shows solar power, wind energy, these beautiful cities that have greenery everywhere. There's plants all integrated. There's animals going around. And you could think of this as you know, underground, you have something like the Boring Company where everyone can quickly transport themselves to wherever they need to go underground. And then in the sky, you have drones doing drone delivery. And there's these perches on the tops of buildings where they collect all their mail for all their drone Amazon deliveries. And then at ground level, you have an idyllic Garden of Eden type of environment where there's grass everywhere. You don't have all of these roads and cars, but instead you have people moving about, walking on grass, maybe barefoot. Maybe there's animals frolicking around and you still have technology, but it's more invisible or integrated into the world. It's more like the world of Avatar, if you've, if you've seen that movie by James Cameron. And I love this vision of the future because it seems like the natural progression that we should be moving towards. You know, when you think about mankind's journey since we first came onto the scene, really it was that before us, everything was perfectly integrated with nature. But once mankind came onto the scene, we seemed to be more cognizant of our own mortality and the fact that we were going to die someday. And with that, we were able to plan for the future to a far greater extent and analyze the past to a far greater extent. But what we lost was our ability to live in the present, which is how we really integrate with the rest of the cybernetic collective of Mother Earth. And that's why we have the term man-made as opposed to nature, because we don't think of ourselves as part of nature. And that's why a lot of solar punk artwork is also psychedelic inspired, because the whole magic mushrooms being sort of integrated with technology is a way of, of communicating the fact that we're able to take the learnings from Mother Earth, from the plant world and the fungi world and the animal world, while also taking all of the best inventions from technology and what mankind has created 
up until now. So I am a big proponent of solar punk. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about solar punk the last few weeks. And I really think this is now a more likely future scenario than the cyberpunk future. So let's talk a little bit more now about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. For the most likely scenario, I want to expand on a quote from Noah Smith. The quote is, Dystopia is when robots take half your jobs. Utopia is when robots take half your jobs. So I love this quote because it speaks to the fact that some things about the future are inevitable. There is no way to save checkout clerk jobs indefinitely. Eventually, it will be obsolete to be someone scanning items at a checkout. That's going to happen regardless. However, other things are not inevitable. The way that we transform society once checkout jobs are obsolete is up to us. It's up to us whether we go towards a cyberpunk future or a solar punk future. And my feeling is that we will get to the solar punk future eventually because that is the natural best state of us being most integrated with Earth and with our entire cybernetic collective. But it will take time and it will take a number of potentially wayward paths of us going the wrong way before we figure out what the right way is for us to go. So I'm super optimistic. I think the most likely scenario is very close to the best case scenario. I think Bitcoin will hit 100K by the end of 2021. I said that on social media, but I just want to say it here for an additional record. I think artificial general intelligence will be achieved by the end of 2031. So I think within 10 years of 2021, it will be achieved. And I think we will solve the world's problems with climate change and energy renewability. But we have to also take care of our fellow human beings. We have to be compassionate and we have to take care of the future, not only of ourselves, but of all the animals and plants and other organisms on Earth. So I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm sure we'll talk more about solar punk in the future. And I'll see you next time.
If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Hence the Future. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.